Hi y'all, I'm Marisa Zapata, and this is the podcast where we examine homelessness by talking to researchers and experts, who of course include people with lived experience of homelessness, to understand what we're missing in the headlines and sound bites. In each episode, we will help clear up misconceptions about homelessness and to answer what it would take to prevent and end homelessness in Portland and beyond. Who am I? I'm an associate professor of land use planning at Portland State University and director of PSU's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, a research center dedicated to reducing and preventing homelessness, where we lift up the experiences and perspectives of people of color. joined by Michael Bonacore, and he is executive director of Home Forward. Is that your title? Actually, yeah, it is. All right. We are hoping that you could tell us a little about yourself, maybe some fun professional things and boring personal things. You Ooh. can flip that around. <laughs> I might have to flip that around. I've been the executive director at Home Forward for six years, and I've almost 20 years since I was hired by the organization. But inside that 20 years, I had a little less than a year when I dipped out and went to work at Sisters of the Road, which was a pretty amazing experience. That's something that still many years later grounds my work and my outlook. On a personal level, I'm a dad of two grown kids. I've lived in Portland for 26 years. Does that uh, make you a local Portlander? I'm always confused at what gives you I declared you myself. I declared myself at 20 years. I'm from Texas. And so you never get to claim that unless you were born there. Well, there are some Oregonians who are very sensitive about it, but I didn't consult with anybody. I just, I just. I appreciate that. I was really interested when you said that you thought your experience at Sisters, without that, you would not be quite as effective at your job. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. They're just such a value-driven organization. And one of their values is that we should always be working towards systemic change to end homelessness and affordable housing is what is needed to end people's homelessness. And so it just gave me a different perspective on the opportunity that I had had when I was here that I didn't fully understand. And so it really sort of broadened my worldview. And then, of course, it's really important at Sisters of the Road that you build authentic relationships with people who are experiencing homelessness. That by itself changes everyone. It's not possible to be in relationship with people regardless of their identity and not you know, not build your understanding, your sense of empathy, and just really striving towards systemic solutions, keeping that motivation rooted in what the community is asking for, as opposed to some sort of bureaucratic idea of what that is. Definitely, a lot of that is attributable to sisters. What do you think community Mm -hmm. members misunderstand or don't get about homelessness? When people recognize that they don't understand it or have misunderstandings about it. You know, I have all the patience in the world for it. But I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings is that people don't understand it, but think that they do. You know, there are simple solutions to end homelessness, but there are also simplistic solutions. And I just wish that people, you know, would feel comfortable in the way that I feel comfortable knowing I don't understand neuroscience. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's one of those things that people just think like, oh, if you just did this, or if, oh, they just did that, or they, they encountered someone who told them that they preferred living outside, that homeless people are all just, they don't want a home. Like this is a lifestyle that they enjoy. Um, and I do, you know, I appreciate 
being inside of it, that there are a lot of complexities around, you know, sort of understanding the systems that are working to address homelessness. But again, yeah, I just, I, I wish there was even more humility around asking questions, wanting to build relationships and, and being comfortable with not knowing and, and not sort of pushing ignorant ideas into the public sphere at a high volume. It's not helpful. I had a wonderful meeting this week with somebody who did come with that humility and said, I have a skill set that might be helpful to you. Tell me what you need to push the work that I don't necessarily know about. And it was just such a refreshing moment. Those folks are out there, but it'd be nice if there were more. Join us listeners. <laughs> um, so a follow-up question, just going back to these misconceptions. Um, I hear this one too a lot. People are talking about how that they've heard that people who are houseless want to live this way. And, and really thinking about like, well, what is the misconception there? Yeah, I think there are, you know, a number of reasons. One of them may be that the shelter options that are available don't work for them for any number of reasons, which can include personal safety, which can include trauma, which can include settings that are not culturally responsive to people of color, you know, and then there is all of the ways in which systems have failed people in the past healthcare system, the justice system, the housing system may have failed people multiple times, right? People build, I think, resilience and survival skills. You know, there may be folks who say that they choose to live outside and want to live outside, and that may be the the safest thing that they've experienced. So those are just a couple of reasons. There can be any number. Are, are there others to think of? It is a lot of these issues around past experiences and and being afraid that people are going to be failed again. You know, the other thing that I've thought about, and I've had a couple people tell me, they often will say that to people just so they'll go away and stop asking them that. I'm amazed at the number of people who just like stop and ask a random person who's in a tent, do you want to keep living this way or do you want to move inside? And I, and I can't imagine how dehumanizing that is and the kind of forced performance. You know, what you might actually say in response to that may not actually be a real answer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the survey that the center did with the joint office and Street Roots and Shannon Singleton, I think really demonstrated that people imagine that there are services out there that would work for them. You know, we asked people what would give them, what would make them feel more supported in community next week. Therapists, caseworkers, stable place to sleep and rest. Those numbers were went up, right? Mm-hmm. Compared to the week before where they hadn't felt supported. So it is, I think, understanding that there is a past experience that is not good, but that people do want and imagine a good thing that could help them. And one of the other things you had said that there are simple solutions, but not simplistic solutions. And we talked a little bit about the idea of simplistic solutions, but Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you think like some of those simple solutions are. A huge amount more affordable housing. (laughs) Make the housing happen. Right. We're capable of it as a country. It's expensive. It's not that expensive. The appropriate amount of investment sustained over time to create enough affordable housing. We could also build an economy that pays people enough to afford rent and food and to take care of themselves. <laughs> Could do both. You know, I don't want to get too crazy. This is not a show about radicalism <laughs> at all. 
Okay, well, that's actually probably a good segue into the work at Home Forward. Why don't you explain to listeners what in the world Home Forward is? And you can't just say it's the housing authority because no one knows what that means either. Sure, sure. We are technically that, which generally means that we administer the public housing and the housing choice voucher program, often referred to as the Section 8 program that had been its name. It's real name now is the Housing Choice Voucher Program. And that provides rental subsidy for people to be able to live in the open rental market. Serves a very similar population of folks, a very similar income profile of folks. Public housing is apartment communities that we own and the rent levels sort of attached to the apartments, you know, have subsidy that adjust to people's incomes and the voucher is sort of like a a rent subsidy that travels with a family or an individual. So that means you're both putting out and sending out money to clients so that they can access housing. And then you've got a side where you're actually building or managing or renovating your own units that you manage specifically. Uh, We also have a portfolio of housing that is considered affordable housing And so that's not subsidized based on people's incomes, but um, the rent levels are set to be affordable based on a certain income level in the community. So that in that role, we are not unique in the community. There are a number of other affordable housing providers. So the the phrase affordable housing gets thrown around a lot. Uh What kind of incomes are we really talking about in Portland when we're talking about people who are qualifying for some kind of affordable housing. Yeah, I'm terrible at holding the um, sort of like the roughly, income roughly. levels. And yeah, but um, this isn't you know, a test. It, we're not going to turn you into HUD for not memorizing the perfect level cuts. Yeah, I mean, you know, you might you might see rents for a, a one bedroom apartment at you know nine hundred, a thousand dollars, where it might otherwise be fifteen hundred dollars. The affordability levels are based on what's referred to as area median income, and very often it's 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 at sixty percent of area median income. So someone who's making, let's say, a, a family of four is ballpark thirty six thousand dollars. And what we find, and I think what other affordable housing providers find in our affordable housing portfolio, is that people are also rent burdened in our affordable housing because we are more affordable than the private market. And that's still not necessarily leaving you enough money to get all the food you need and the transportation costs and childcare and all of that. In terms of language that I think a lot of people understand, people are over that kind of housing cost burden, 30% metric that often gets used to discuss what, what kind of housing can you actually afford. And then we're essentially having to have people who are making little essentially having to have a higher burden of housing costs. We are not unique as a housing authority in that we house or provide rental subsidy for about a quarter to a third of the people who are income qualified. That's true nationally as well. And so if you've got someone who would benefit from a housing subsidy to get that rent payment down to 30% of their income, but there isn't the subsidy available, they may be paying 50, 60, 70% of their income to live in what's considered affordable housing, (laughs) right? Because that, again, like that is more affordable than what they could find in the private market. And there is no, there's not enough of that subsidy that would make their rent actually affordable. 
Yeah. And I think this, this helps people understand that it's not as simple as giving somebody a voucher or a place to live. And that in five years, once they've started to recover from the trauma of homelessness or have had the great job training to think they're not going to be in need of continuing to have support for housing. Absolutely. Right. And again, it's, you know, it's an issue of the economy. We see plenty of folks who come in with low incomes, increase their hours, get pay raises, you know, get job training that lead to higher paying jobs and going from $22,000 a year to $45,000 a year is a massive move for someone to make and takes a lot of effort and you still can't pay the damn bills. Yeah, I've seen some really interesting conversations around a living wage versus a housing wage. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw the housing wage in Oregon. I think it was up into the $23 or $24 range. It was a massive win to get minimum wage up to $15. And yet, it's still not going to be a housing wage. And I think that's hard for people to, to wrap their head around. You know, one of the things that we often talk about is the disparate rates of housing insecurity and homelessness for people of color. And particularly, we see this in terms of the data for people who are Black and Native American. From your experience, why do you think that these disparate rates exist to the degree that they do? Oh, because that's how our country was built, right? <laughs> right? Like, we're getting Michael's exactly like, I can't outcomes. believe I'm having to explain this right now to this lady. <laughs> She's going to probably yell at me for the explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the is this the time when you identify that I'm a white man? I was I just about to say this question. <laughs> Michael is a white man. Be the only white man who ever appears on this show. We'll get to the question. I mean, I think you're already hearing why I wanted him to to speak to these issues. And there's a couple of questions I think he has been able to answer very well. I mean, I you know I was being a little flip, but not uh, but but it's the truth. You know, whether it's housing policy and practice that specifically excluded Black veterans from getting VA loans or, you know, intentional redlining in communities that suppressed home values and prevented the building of wealth or predatory loan practices that wiped out whatever wealth existed, like that by itself diminishes the economic resilience of Black and brown people. That doesn't even take into account every other system that's been built to have the same effect, right? Like, the inadequate healthcare that people get that make them that much more vulnerable to losing employment. Just the whole damn system is built to get exactly the outcomes that we're getting. I always say that it's not a surprise, right? right. We, we designed a system to do this. So here was the money question. You know, people are walking around Portland and they're still seeing people who are unsheltered. And yet, you know, we voted now on two bonds to, to build housing. And now we voted in the services measure. What is taking so long? Where is the affordable housing? Part of it is is sort of public perception of like you become aware of something and think like get shovels in the dirt tomorrow, right? Which is what we want to do. Yes, I want to do that. Tell me how I can make that happen. And that's the that's the other part of the scenario. So in that, you know, this isn't the only way it happens, but it is a common way that it happens that the city says like there are resources available. We're going to give some pieces of property and we're going to give some money. And so Home Forward and others raise their hand and we get 
we get these awards. From that moment, then you have to start assembling the financing to build it because the money that comes with it from the city is never intended to pay for the whole thing. It's never going to be enough. There are affordable uh, housing tax credits that are awarded at the state. That's a whole bucket of something to understand, but like that helps to finance affordable housing. There's a mortgage. There's sometimes an organization has their own cash that they can put in, but like right from the outset of there being a property identified, like you've got a funding hole to fill before you can ever put a shovel in the dirt. That is just sort of inherent to our industry. So you're talking about multiple sources of funding that probably have multiple types of applications, some of which are going to be public applications that will have a a different type or a higher level of scrutiny. This sounds awful. (laughs) It's not great. Part of what birthed this is the idea that, you know, there was corruption in public housing, the idea that, you know, anywhere you can find an instance of something going badly, you can extrapolate that to like government is corrupt or banks are corrupt or whatever, you know, right? But in fact, public housing as a concept and as a resource where you get the money to build the housing, you don't do all this other stuff. Like it's it's funded. You know, there was it was politicized and it was sort of like, well, if this kind of housing benefits from sort of the brilliance of the private market, banks and lawyers are involved, then there's going to be sort of like this rigor and scrutiny, and it's just going to be a better system. And in fact, what happens is you spend more money on legal fees and banks, and it takes more time. So there's just a degree of complexity that's built into it that cannot be avoided unless there is just sort of someone, like a Gates Foundation that comes in and says, here's $50 million free and clear to build a building, then you can just sort of go. So then this Um, becomes kind of the argument for a public housing fund or to reinvest in that kind of fund. It is. In this last election cycle was the first time we started hearing people talking about reinvesting. Like in the years leading up, what we have heard is essentially that public housing is dying and to just accept that it's going away. Like we haven't invested in new public housing stock in this country in decades, and we've lost hundreds of thousands of apartments. But it doesn't mean we couldn't make the choice to reinvest in public housing. And we've seen some politicians, including locally, Congressman Blumenauer put put a proposal forward that would, I want to say quadruple funding for subsidized housing, hope flickers. So there's just the, the financing part of it, assembling that, getting that all together is huge. This is also something that comes up, particularly from the private developers, who will say, well, we could solve this faster if you gave us waivers on 17 million different things. I think it's where these questions of values, I want to try to really start to uplift. I mean, I think this financing example is quite fascinating, right? The existing financing system that you're describing actually exists for because of a set of value assumptions. But then are there other things that add time to our processes, but are driven by values that we've chosen, that we could unchoose, but that we have chosen to embrace? Yeah, maybe not time, but money. You know, the other criticism of affordable housing is that it's expensive. And there are a number of factors that go into that, like you said, um, sort of social and public values around the idea that if public funding is going to be used to build a 12-story building, that it should be done with you know, good environmental standards in mind, let alone the idea that one of the ways that 
black and brown people's health suffers and poor people in general's health suffers. It's because of things like indoor air quality, because of living in substandard housing. So the idea is like, we're actually going to build something of enough quality that people living there have healthy conditions to live in. And we're going to try to minimize the impact to the environment. And so that, you know, that's an example. Another example is around wages and uh, sort of job protections for people who are working on publicly funded projects that inherently is more expensive. Yeah, I think it's just so important to, for people to understand like the different points in which we are doing, we're always doing value-driven work. And so we being clear about what those values are. And you know, if people want to re-examine them to make affordable housing happen faster, we can, but there's also reasons why some of these things are there. Some of them I personally think are great. I also think there's some that I think are problematic. All right. Well, last question. Wondering in this work around affordable housing, how our friendly NIMBYs factor in? NIMBYs are not in my backyard buddies. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> We've made it this far without me dropping an F-bomb and you're just trying to I mean, what what I can tell you is that I live in a neighborhood with lots of affordable housing developments in close proximity and public housing developments in close proximity. And I think very often you get people who will express sort of, again, air quotes, progressive values around wanting more affordable housing, wanting more shelters for people experiencing homelessness and don't want them across the street from them. And then no one has a good answer about where it should be as long as it's somewhere other than in proximity to them. And we've experienced, you know, security issues at our at our properties that we've had to spend some time and resources to address. And there are lots of people living in private market apartments where that happens. And lots of people who are earning plenty of money causing problems in their neighborhoods. Yeah, that's a frustration. So do they actually like protest your sites? I mean, I'm sure you know about like the the uproar in my neighborhood and St. John's over trying to site this tiny home village. Yeah. Like, do you have that level of scrutiny by neighbors when you're trying to site a project? Yeah, you know, we really have not. That isn't a rallying call for any NIMBYs who are listening. Right. Don't call me. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Continue to not protest these projects. All right. Well, is there anything that you want to share? You want people to remember or know about Home Forward's work in homelessness or just homelessness in general? You know, one thing I actually meant to say earlier when you asked about misperceptions, it's really important for us to have committed local political leadership around ending homelessness. And this is a national problem that has been caused by federal disinvestment. Homelessness is not a local failure. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be critical and be pushing local leaders. But I think another thing that's really harmful around efforts to make progress is when we're getting local investment that helps and certainly helps things not be worse. But the scale of need has to be addressed with federal investment. And that's where we're being dramatically failed. And so I I hope, you know, whether it's when people vote or when they are mad about, you know, some elected leader or some body that they recognize sort of that larger context. It's a, it's important to spread the anger. 
I agree with that. Share the frustration <laughs> and anger yeah. and pay attention to who's elected at all levels if it's an issue you want to address. Yes. All right, Michael. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. That was Michael Bonacor, who in his free time is the executive director of Home Forward, talking with us about affordable housing and why it takes longer than you might think to come online. Thank you for joining us in tackling these complicated questions as we build knowledge about how our community can move forward together on homelessness.